0: last few weeks, six weeks, I think, or something, five weeks, I don't know, about the Torah portions that were pictures of, according to them, of what the end is going to look like. And we, they say whatever happens to the patriarchs or the fathers is sure to happen to us again. So the last portion of the book of Bereshit, Genesis, sort of pulls this all together. And for anybody who's been here for the last 30 years, they know that I always equate Israel with us, with Gentile believers. And this section actually sort of nails that down. And it has some pretty interesting stuff in it. So the Torah portion is, oh, wait a minute. See that? That is a depiction of Jacob blessing his two grandsons. And the interesting thing, you know, I go on, I search, I Google. No, I don't Google. I hate Google. I search whatever topic I'm looking at, and it was uh, Jacob blessing his grandsons or something you know, something like that. And so you can get 100,000 pictures of anything you ask. So I'm looking through page after page after page of pictures. And 90% of them don't have the fact that he crossed his arms. Some do, though. None of them, not a single one of them had him blessing an Egyptian child. Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah, and they were Egyptian. Mm-hmm. Not one of them. So so you got this mm-hmm. one. which <laughs> he's has got the furry arm going on. Um, uh, uh, I actually changed uh, it. Oh, you did? That looks nothing like what it did before. Well, it was all blurry okay. and there was a watermark on it. I and know. You couldn't she see She does, it does it anyway, all this so. good stuff. I don't know how to do it. I okay, so anyway, that's the depiction of what we're talking about. But the interesting thing was not one single picture. And certainly none of the, the historical paintings, you know how they would always, all these famous artists would paint these depictions of biblical situations. Not one of them had Egyptian children in there, which I thought was, I mean, that's, that's basic. It's you know, like Hollywood. Oh my gosh. So what's and Egypt? most of them didn't have the, the whole crossed arms thing. Are you thinking he would have dark skin? Uh, some of Egyptians? them have darker skin, but certainly they didn't look like that. Okay. They would be ravaged by the sun and burnt to a crisp skin Joseph's that Joseph's children were with an <coughs> Egyptian wife. Right, So, so. They, and plus they lived in Egypt and he was the, the uh, viceroy of Egypt. Right. So they would have looked like Egypt, he looked like an Egyptian, shaved his head, and all the gold collars, you know, I mean, he was an Egyptian. So his children certainly would have looked the same way. Anyway, okay, the Torah portion is Vaichi, and there's the sections of the Torah portion there, Genesis 47 through the end of the book, 47:28, which is the last three or four verses of 47. Um, and then these other two, the Haftor section, I think they missed a bet there. they should have gone with jeremiah thirty one anyway uh, so the torah portion begins in genesis forty seven twenty eight by saying and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt and the country of Goshen so that's what the 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 torah portion says and he lived and Jacob lived through a lot you know you think about his even even in the womb, there was tribulation. He's fighting his twin brother in the womb. He lives his life uh, with this godless brother. There's the whole birthright thing, the uh, blessing thing. He flees his home to go to cousin Laban's house, gets stuck there for 20 years. On the way he wrestles, or well, on the way back, in Bethel, uh, wrestles with God. He's got the the ladder he sees with the angels coming and going. Uh, The 20 years with Levon and how he gets ripped off. He does get four wives out of the deal, though. Then there's the whole, he's done. He's ready to go. He leaves, remember, and Levon and all his men come chasing after him. So he's got to deal with that. And then he's got Esau coming with 400 men. So he figures that's the end for him. Uh, He deals with the loss of Rachel, the loss of Leah. There's the whole rape of Dinah. Then his two sons go kill all the men of Shechem. Um, Reuben defiles his marriage bed. The apparent death of Joseph. There's the famine. They go down to Egypt. Then Joseph appears. I mean, his life was uh, full of trial and tribulation. And that's the first lesson. The Torah portion says, and he lived. Through all of this, he lived and he followed the Lord and the Lord was with him every step of the way. And so much of what happened to him is critical in getting us to understand the things of the Lord. It had to happen. You know, the things with Joseph and the, I mean, all of this had to happen. And so the lesson then is, and he lived, things happen to us, right? And we're none of us, probably the entire room of us, can't compare with the trial and tribulations that Jacob went through over his 147 years. But we all have stuff. There's stuff going on, and sometimes it's it's easy for us to sort of disassociate that stuff, whatever's happening in our lives, with a plan for the Lord. And we talked last week about. You know, the things that we think are bad are, are bad. We think they're bad because it's our flesh doesn't like it. We don't like the way it feels, the way it tastes, the way it sounds, whatever it is. And we put the name on it, it's bad. But it's just as likely the Lord is using that for good. So just because our flesh doesn't like it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And that's the very picture of Jacob. And if Jacob's name is Israel and Israel is is, is us, we can expect that same sort of uh, stuff's going to happen you know and we need to just be able to go with it like his son Joseph did and like he did you just trust the Lord that if it's not from the Lord the Lord's going to work it out one way or the other so you look at you know Jacob and there were certainly times when he thought it was all over when Esau was going to get him when the famine was going to get him when you know whatever it was and yet there was, there was a purpose in it all. So we we live too. And we live through stuff. And that's, I think, what the Lord uses to make us the way he wants us to be. So the promises that Jacob had on his first day, well, even before his first day, were absolutely as true as the promises on his last day. It's it God is always, always good. So... Um, These things challenged his faith, just like sometimes they challenge ours, I think. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves in places where sometimes we think, well, God's not here, you know, either through our own doing or circumstances that are out of our control. And that's never true. Even if we reject God, he's still there. So we just need to, you know, we need to remember he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So what affects us really has no bearing on the Lord's plan. You know, we can either get on board or get left behind. So there's a Hebrew uh, word up here, and I amazingly enough forgot to put the word. The top one is the word, uh, it's, it's the Saudi, so it's T-S, and it's just T-S-R, but it's pronounced like Tsar. It's pronounced T-S-W-A-R. And it's the word that means uh, narrow, tight, squeeze, pressure, things like that. And if you look at the word for Egypt, the uh this word sar is makes up the exact middle of Mitzurim. So the idea of Egypt, which is always a picture of the world, is built on this idea, if you want to say it that way, this idea of being uh, s- squeezed or under pressure or in a narrow spot. And that's what the world does to us. And we, we tend to try to avoid that. We, we, we go to great extents often to not be squeezed or to, to release the pressure or to find some way to avoid it. And um, maybe, that's not always the best thing. So Exodus 14 verse 1 and 2 it says the Lord spake unto Moses saying speak to the children of Israel that they encamp and that's the, you know the word we've talked about before that's usually translated as grace kan or kana speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihakayroth, which means the mouth of the gorges, between Migdol. And do you remember Migdal, The Migdal idea. So that's the word for tower or uh, tall hill or something like that. Between Migdol and the sea, over against Bathsheba, which is which shall be a camp encamp by the sea. So if you remember when uh, Moses led the the children out of Egypt, they were supposed to go to Canaan, which is like three days that way, seven days that way, whatever it was. But they didn't go there. They went that way. And they went up, went northwest, I guess, or northeast. And they went to this place that I can't pronounce. It means the mouth of the gorge. So they walked two to three million people through these uh, dolls, these tall, tall towers in this valley, right up to the Red Sea. And if you recall, the pharaoh looked at that and said, well, they've become entangled in the land. Let's go get them because they had no escape. They had the Red Sea to their back, uh, sheer mountains on both sides, and the pharaoh and his army were coming down the valley. So it seemed as though they were done for. And this is this word squeeze. You know, you find yourself in a valley. And for those of you that hike or bike, you get those, you know, canyons that are super tall but only wide enough for one person not for me to squeeze through right sometimes you have to turn sideways they're just it's like that you're stuck you're being squeezed it's a narrow it's pressure and that's where they were and the lord led them there this was no mistake they could have gone the other way where it's wide open in a big desert and they would have had all this room but the lord had a plan so they're thinking that this squeezing this narrow that they're in is their is their coffin this is it for them but the lord led them there because it was his plan to eliminate the egyptian army and who could have thought that he was going to part the red sea and that the entire 3 million people of israel were going to walk through the red sea on dry land and then he was going to close it up and eliminate the Egyptian army, which was the plan from the very get-go. If they had gone the other way and they were out in the desert, they could have all run and scattered. And certainly they would have been uh, killed by the Egyptians and their chariots and horses and all that stuff. So the Lord had this plan. And and we, we look at that and we can kind of get the message that, you know, the Lord has a plan. He's going to take care of you. Just because you don't see it, you know, blah, blah, doesn't mean anything. But I think it's more than that with these with these words that are used, especially in Mitzurim and, and Tsar, where you're being squoze and all that stuff. Um, it's almost a requirement, all right? it's really not almost. It is a requirement for a believer or a follower of Yahweh to be squeezed, to find themselves under pressure, to find yourself stuck in this... This, this valley with walls on both sides and obstacles at both ends. That's sort of part of the deal. We have to do that. And when you think of it like, oh, the Lord is with me and he'll get me out of all this, that's true and he'll be with you and he can use you know whatever stupid things we do. But I think the picture is bigger than that. You have to do that. You have to find yourself in that position. And if you've, I mean, I don't know anybody, let alone a Christian who has never had any sort of pressure or squeezing in their lives. But I can't imagine that if you were to live a life like that, that that somehow engenders any strength or faith or anything in you. If everything just goes great all the time, I mean, what kind of life would that be? It would be, bless you, it would be awesome, but it would be painful and pitiful at the same time, because there would be no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have strength or faith or any of that stuff. So if you recall, when uh, Jacob was in the desert, and the lad comes by, and they wind up wrestling through the night and all that, you know, and that was, of course, the Lord wrestling with him. And at the end of the deal, remember, he touches his hip and puts his hip out of socket or does something. So he will forever limp, And that's obviously on purpose, because if you are Jacob, if you're Israel, if you're, uh, you know, as we get through the rest of this, the two grandkids, or at least the one, you have to walk differently. That's the whole point of being a follower of the Lord is you walk differently. People should, they could see Jacob for miles because of the way he walked they knew it was him before they could ever recognize him that's how we're to be we are to walk in such a way that everybody will recognize who you are and if nobody knows you from the next guy then i suggest maybe you need to work on your walk and it can be uh you know it certainly be the walk but but also remember most of this stuff in Scripture, when they talk about, um, you know, they see it off in the distance. It can be off in the distance, you know, five miles away. But typically, it's off in the distance of time. And that's a lot of the times how it is for us. And we're talking about how we walk differently from the world. It Certainly, that means today in whatever we're doing we should be different and people should know that, oh, that, that guy's, you know, something different about him. He follows this weird Lord guy or whatever. But in the distance of time, we need to be different too. We need to be, there's a longer range goal. And that's always been the way it is with um, pretty much everything in scripture. It's in, it's in the distance of time. And we need to consider that. So uh, John sixteen thirty three. It says, these things I have spoken unto you, that, uh, that in me you might have peace, and in the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So you see this word in English is the uh, Greek word phibo, which is the Hebrew word that we were just talking about, the sade resh, sar. Uh, which is the same word for squeezing, pressure, narrow, tight. It's eventually translated into English as tribulation. So, again, when we think about, you know, tribulation and stuff, um, we can we can think of tribulation that's sort of out of our hands, a, a sickness or, you know, there, there are a number of things that we really don't, have much control over we didn't do it i mean purposely we didn't do it it's it's come upon us and but it's tribulation and so if you take that back to the to the hebrew it's this squeezing it's this pressure and if you know if the way i'm thinking about this is right any of these tribulations from the tribulation you know the big t tribulation to our personal tribulations can be used and should be used and perhaps should be thought of in a, in a sense that it's a, it, it's, a, it's a squeezing the Lord is either doing or has allowed in our lives for a purpose and it's hard for us when we're having especially a sickness or something that seems out of our control it's sort of hard for us to think well gosh huh, I wonder what the Lord's gonna do with this but really it's true because he's not into wasting effort and words so if there's something that comes upon us that we view as a tribulation the first thing is to look at it and see is this really tribulation or is this just something that's hurting my flesh and i don't like it does it taste bad does it feel bad does it you know does it promise poorly and i don't like that because that means nothing Really, in the spiritual sense, because the Lord could be working something out completely different. And that could just be an incidental step in the, in the process. Or is this tribulation that I'm experiencing or going through something that the Lord's trying to teach me something or to be a certain way? Or, you know, it's impossible to guess. Or maybe I've got this squeezing of this tribulation because I have to do something which is often what we see in Scripture. And maybe it's, I have to, you know, maybe there's a doctor or a nurse or a cab driver or an ambulance driver or something that needs to hear or see or do. You know, it's impossible for us to calculate what the tribulation is and what he wants for us to experience or do through that. And I'm not saying we should know, I'm just saying we should be open to the fact that what we think is bad is not necessarily bad from his perspective because he could be working something out. And who, who among us wouldn't give up our lives in, you know, in, a, in a terrible way if we would be assured it brought five people or three people or our father or our cousin or whatever to the Lord? Because if we're already saved, what does it matter? Right, if, if 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 we get killed on you know in a gunfight in downtown Denver over a jeep fender or something, what does it matter? Because it just speeds up, you know, our arrival there. But if that action could bring people to the Lord who wouldn't perhaps otherwise get there, I suggest anyone in this room would make that deal after some thought and consideration. But So we need to think of things like that and perhaps, you know, and if if he's got something for us to do with someone or go somewhere, you know, we would have no way of knowing that. We just have to be open to it because it might happen and, you know, it might not. But we just need to be open and not look at things the way that we we tend to. So uh, this word, when you read tribulation in the New Testament, think of this squeezing or this pressure and think of that as being an action that the lord is using for some purpose uh, matthew 7 13 says enter ye at the straight gate so you've you know we've, we know the straight gate and the narrow road and the wide gate and the, and, and the broad road but keep in mind this word straight because it keeps coming up and it's always connected to this idea of pressure and squeezing and God doing something to get us to walk in a certain way, to look a certain way, to, you know, to see something different in the distance of time. So enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there shall be which go therein. Because it is straight, uh, because it is the straight gate and narrow, and this is that same Hebrew word, uh, squeezing, or narrow, it's the way which leads to life, and few that are that find it. So we're all familiar with that idea that the narrow road is what leads to life, and we kind of, uh, or at least I do. I'm assuming I'm probably not the only one. You kind of envision the narrow gate as being, you know, like the 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 gold, the brick. What is it? The golden yeah. brick road. The golden brick Northern road and road. the red shoes. You know, or <coughs> oh, the yellow brick. Yellow brick road, that's it, thank you. (laughs) Yellow brick road. So you see that as, you know, kind of going off into the distance in heaven, and everybody else is, you know, swimming downstream. But no, that's not the way it's actually written. This whole narrow gate thing and, and straight road thing isn't this beautiful path up into the clouds, it's this squeezing, it's this pressure. It's he's he's forcing us to do something that we probably would rather not do if it was up to our flesh, we would avoid that. And that's exactly how people get on the broad road and the broad path. You know, we think, oh, you know, the people on the yellow on the brick Road are going to be awesome people. And the people going the other way, they're not so good. And that may not be anything like the truth. It may just be that they chose the broad road because they're avoiding the squeezing, the narrow, the pressure, because they don't understand that that's what God uses almost exclusively to bring us to the place that he wants us to be, where he can use us, that we can learn the lesson. They don't want to die to self. They don't want to die to self. And and, I mean, it makes sense if it's going to be (laughs) uncomfortable and painful, we I mean, it, we try to avoid it, right? It's if we it, at any extent, if we could avoid it, we would. And uh, yes, Some people probably perceive it as punishment. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and if, it's not. Because a punitive God? It's it, <laughs> it's typically the opposite of punishment. It's yeah. it's yeah. often uh, it, it's often a gift. This squeezing and this pressure and this. Narrowness, and you're in this valley and the enemy's coming and, and the Red Sea's there and we're all going to die, it's hard to say, oh, well, that's awesome. I'd rather be there than just walking through the desert. But often that's God's economy. So Matthew 28, 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even into the end of the world. Amen. And we know this. I mean, we know this verse. We saw oh, he's always with us. So if, if we know that and we believe that, then why do we struggle against the squeezing and the pressure? Because it says he's with us always to the end of the day, to the end of the world. So it's not as though, oh, I'm getting crushed here and God's out to lunch. You know, he's forgotten about me over here. He, he didn't want this for me. This is terrible. Well, maybe he wanted that for you because it's the opposite of terrible. Maybe at the end of this is what you're searching for. Okay. So I guess what I'm saying is, it and i hate i hate to say things you know absolutely but it seems like it often requires a squeezing or pressure or a situation that we feel like oh god wouldn't do that to us it requires that for us to be saved <coughs> so think that through the next time you're up against something interesting that you don't want to deal with and think you know god oh god would never do this to me this must be the enemy and i've always thought satan gets way too much credit for way too many things because he doesn't have the power to do most of this stuff so why do we give him the power why do we take it would be awful to stand in front of the lord and you know Proclaim, oh, I fought Satan all the way on this, only to find he was squeezing you for a purpose. And we missed it. But I suspect most of us do that all the time. Okay, so Joseph is told that his father Israel is sick and is about to die. So he gathers his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And do you remember? Did we talk about Manasseh means to forget? Because the first son was born, and Joseph said, I'm going to forget all this, you know, the pit and the jail and the 17 years that I was mistreated. I can forget all that because now I have this son and I'm, you know, somebody. So his first son is named Manasseh, and his second son is named Ephraim, which means fruitful or double fruit so you, you remember when Rachel uh, where Rachel died does anybody remember that story I didn't know it before but you said last time that well the time time week before last that uh, Jacob said if anybody in my group did did steal that let them die oh yeah yeah and yeah. so then she did die and she did birth. die there and she died at Bethlehem Ephrata which is the same word as Ephraim it means fruitful mm-hmm. so she died giving birth giving birth but it was fruitful and obviously the you know I mean the obvious fruitful part of it was the children, Joseph and, and, and Benjamin, but Ephraim, Ephratata, Beth Bethlehem, Ephrata, you know, you hear all those things. Those are all the same sort of word. And they mean fruitful, double fruit, I is, 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 uh, I don't remember how to spell it. It's P-R-E, I guess, is the word for fruit. And it's in it's in the middle of all of these words. So they have this sense of, a um, fruitful of good, and that's where Rachel died, and that's the name of his second son. So, okay, Genesis forty-eight uh, one through five. I'm going to read here. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, "Behold, thy father is sick." And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he t- and one told Jacob and said, "Behold, thy son Joseph." Come unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make thee a multitude of people, and I will give this land to thy seed for an everlasting possession. Now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came, unto Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine so does that seem weird hey there's a uh, Kevin <laughs> so Israel is about to die Joseph brings his two sons in who are born in Egypt and Israel sits up in the bed and says Those two sons that you had, they're my sons, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. They are mine. I am adopting them. They're not yours anymore. They're mine. So the, uh, well, one of the questions would be, Jacob, Israel, is patriarch of the 12 tribes, right? He's, He's sort of the big kahuna here. He's got the 12 tribes already. All of Israel is in place through the 12 tribes. And now he says, I'm adopting two Egyptians. Does that seem weird? Because these children are half Egyptian. They're Joseph's children, but Joseph's wife was Egyptian and they lived in Egypt. They looked Egyptian, they spoke Egyptian, and so he's adopting those, taking them away from Joseph, and saying, "Those are mine." If we go back to, uh, let's see, there think be a multitude of people. Okay, let me just go ahead here. Uh, so a couple things are happening. He Israel has picked Joseph to be the first one which means he gets the double portion. But he wasn't the firstborn. In fact, he was the 11th born. He's way down the list. So by, by, in, by adopting these two kids, he's actually giving Joseph a double portion because each of those children, because they're now his, will get the same uh, the benefit or adoption or uh, inheritance. Inheritance. inheritance, I'm sorry, the same inheritance as all the other kids, but now both of his kids get one. So in fact, Joseph now gets a double portion. So he's sort of backhandedly assigning him the the firstborn status because he gets the double portion. It's also giving Rachel two more sons because this is Joseph's sons, which would give her four sons and elevate her above the handmaidens who only had three sons. Uh, but, But genealogy... Is counted on the woman's side, not the man's side. So, genealogy speaking, genia, whatever Logically. it is, genealogically speaking, these children are Egyptian. They are not Hebrew because their mother was Egyptian. So it seems uh, it seems a little weird sometimes. Genesis thirty-five eleven through twelve. and we read this some weeks ago. And God God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins, and the land in which I gave Abraham and Isaac thee, I will give it to the seed after thee, and I will give it the land. So God is just perpetual, you know, he's got the promised land, he's given it to Abraham, which went to Isaac, which went to Israel, and he's saying this land I'm giving to you. This is your inheritance. But he says um, he's going to make him a company of nations, as we read it in English, a company of nations. So I don't know. I always thought, and I'm guessing probably most of you thought, a company of nations, he's got 12 children, 12 tribes, certainly that must be what he's talking about, right? A company of nations. There's 12 different tribes coming out of this deal, even though they're all sort of one group and they have become Yehuda. They're called Jews to this day. So when you, when you look at this company of nations phrase, which appears a couple of times, but not a lot, it's kahal, kahal, which you, you may or may not know it means congregation or assembly um, this this word kahal in greek is translated ecclesia ecclesia you know which which in english is translated as church so if you read kahal as church the next word nations is go goim which is the word goi plural well Most of us know a goy is a Gentile, right? Jews always call us goys because we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to make you a company of nations. Well, what he's saying is I'm making you a church of Gentiles? I mean, he's talking to Israel. And he says, all of this land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of this promised land that I've given to you, this is your home. And he says, I'm going to turn you into a company of me. I'm going to turn you into a church of Gentiles and give them all this land. Well, that's not the way we read the book. We read the book as though it's all Jewish land. But it's not. It's this church of Gentiles. So Jacob has, now has in front of him Joseph's two sons who are not Jewish. They're Egyptian, but they're following the things of their father, the, the, the Jewish religion and traditions and words and teachings, even though they're Egyptians. So when you read this, I'm going to make you a company of nations or a church of Gentiles. It has to be more than the 12 brothers. It has to be somebody from outside of the realm. And it apparently has to be a Gentile. So that's the big deal with why Israel took Jacob's uh, Joseph's two sons. He adopted them. There was no discussion It's not, hey, by the way, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give your kids some stuff. It's no, I'm taking them as sons to me, just as Reuben and Simeon, my first and second born are. They are to me in the same way. They will get the same inheritance. They have the same rights. They have everything all my other sons do. But they're Gentiles. So... If you go back and read Genesis 35, you know, 11 and 12, you know, around there somewhere, and you get this idea of the company of nations, you shall be, and kings shall come out of your loins, and the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to, to you I will give it, and to your seed. So to read in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Book of Beginnings, that this promised land that's been the goal and promise of all of scripture is to be given to the church of Gentiles kind of strikes you odd or it certainly does with me but that's exactly the the account that's been given from day one when God builds his house and he's going to bring the people there and, and all of the disciples knew that The Gentiles had been accepted by the Lord. What do we do with that? Because the religious establishment said no possible way. You have to be a Jew, a son of Abraham, to inherit the things of God. Well, that's not true. From the very beginning of the book, God says otherwise. That that this promised land, these patriarchs, are to be a company of nations. Certainly the 12 tribes, which account for the Hebrew, the Judah part of Israel and Judah. And then you've got these two Gentiles who are the Israel part of Judah and Israel. And it is to them that the land belongs. Genesis 49, 6 through 8. And thy issue, which thou begot after them, Uh, shall be thy you're gonna have children after this those children are your children and they shall be called after the name of their brethren in inheritance but these two these two Egyptians they're mine everything else you have you you can have those are yours excellent and in point of fact we don't ever read of Joseph having any more children but and as for me when I came from Padan, Rachel died uh, by me in the land of Canaan by the way when yet there was but a little way to come to Ephrata, which is fruitful, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrata, which is the same as Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, house of bread, Ephrata, fruitful. That's where Rachel is. That's where... Um, anyway. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons. Okay, so he's just, he's just gone through all this. He's taking, he says, I'm going to take your two children. And I'm making them mine. They're not yours anymore, they're mine. They're getting inheritance, that's the deal. Manasseh and Ephraim, they're mine. And then he says, And Israel behold Joseph's sons and said, Whose are these? Well, he just said, He just adopted them, and yet he looked at them and didn't recognize them. So think that through. Israel does not recognize the heirs to the land. And that's the way it is today. Israel does not recognize us as having any claim to being children of God because we're not Jewish. According to them, we can't have a claim. They do not recognize us. That's exactly what happened here with Israel. He said, those kids are mine. He goes through all the reasons why. He looks at them. Who are these guys? And it's interesting. It says it, in, in, uh, in Hebrew, anyway, it reads, whose are these? And that, word, that, that term, whose are these? If you switch the letters around, it becomes the word for Elohim. So whose are these? They're Elohims, they're gods, which I thought was interesting. But anyway, he he can't recognize him because the Egyptian does not look Jewish. And you remember when the brothers came down, first the 10, then the 11, they didn't recognize Joseph because he was dressed as a, as a, a Egyptian. He spoke as an Egyptian. His office was an Egyptian office. They didn't recognize him. And yet he was their salvation. That's the deal at the end of time. Israel does not recognize us. And yet we are the church of the Gentiles, as we just read. And all this has been given to us for what reason? So that all Israel may be saved. It goes back to this hidden and concealed thing. All through scripture, there's always a hidden person, typically a person, but not always and then it becomes revealed when it, when, when it suits God's purposes. And those purposes usually revolve around saving all of Israel. Well, that's the picture. And this, this whole thing starts with, and it ends with, in the end of days. So, again, I, I, don't, I don't know how you can... Well, I guess I do. I don't see why you would read this and not see this picture. Because the the Jews, the 12 tribes, Judah, Yehuda, can't see Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. Well, it's not complete yet. So Israel is never going to recognize the church of the Gentiles as a legitimate heir to the Father until this fullness of the Gentiles happens, and then they will see. That's what we read in Malachi. That's what you read in Hosea. That's what Paul's talking about with the, the two olive trees. And if you've ever read about olive trees and, and uh, I don't know, are there any gardeners here that, <laughs> yeah, my ex-wife gardener, no, my, my wife, Ex-gardener. <laughs> she doesn't garden much anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> apparently, and I'm not a gardener, but apparently if you're going to do a, a graft, especially to an olive tree, you know, you cut a V in the deal and then you cut a branch and you cut a V in it and you put it in there and you tape it all off and you don't know if it's going to work for three days. At the, on the third day, it either takes or it dies which I thought was interesting. But anyway, that's what Paul's talking about, right? Is He's taking the wild olive tree, the church of the Gentiles, the, uh, uh, whatever I said, the group of the nations, these two Egyptian children that have been made heirs to the land, you're taking that and you're grafting it in to the natural olive tree. And do you know why you graft stuff together? I didn't know this obviously if you you know you want to put a branch where there wasn't a branch or you like Home Depot sells those trees that grow four different fruits you know because they graft different okay but apparently on most trees or most plants one of the reasons you graft stuff in is because that branch will grow fruit but it causes the natural branches to fruit had you not put the graft in it the natural branches would just put out some fruit. But you put this graft in them and it causes the tree to, to bear more fruit. Well, that's the picture Paul's talking about with the tree, right? You take the, the wild olive tree and you graft part of that in so that you can get the fruit off the grafted branch. But the point of the graft is to cause the natural tree to bear more fruit. And, of course, you know that after three days, which I thought was interesting. Okay, Jeremiah 31. Now, if, if I had written the haftorah part, Jeremiah 31 would be the Hoftor for this section. And I would, uh, if, if you're interested in doing some homework and catching up, read Jeremiah chapter. You should know this chapter anyway, but read Jeremiah chapter 31 because it's awesome. So starting in verse 9, it says, And they shall come with weeping, with supplications, and I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, which again, I said we'd mention that again, where <clears throat> wherein they shall not stumble. For I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So here's God telling... Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jerry's given this whole story. It's a great chapter. You need to read it. You need to know that chapter by heart. God is telling him of all these things about his people. And then he says, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, Ephraim's not even Jewish. He's an Egyptian. He's a Gentile. But that's God's firstborn. That's us. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, which is the word goi, and declare it in the isles afar of off, and say that he who scatters Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does keep his flock. For the Lord, Lord that has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. <clears throat> this term, isles afar of off, we read that four or five times in Scripture, and it's generally thought to meant to mean the places past the Mediterranean because the known world was around the Mediterranean but what's out past it well we're not sure but whatever's out there they called the far off islands and a lot of times um, Tarshish is another word it's this land that's out there so it doesn't take much imagination to be able to include us in that isles afar off thing. So it says hear hear the word of the Lord, O you nations which is goy again. It's Gentile. Hear the word of the Lord, you Gentiles, and declare it in the islands afar off, which could be us. And the Lord has scattered his people and he will redeem them. He'll bring them back. How many times have you read that? He scatters his people but he regathers them. He's going to (coughs) regather Two or three times depending on how you read that. Well is that us? Israel is the Gentile believers, the Gentiles followers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. That's us. And we're in these isles of far off, and we're certainly goy, we're, we're Gentiles. But the Lord will gather them, gather us. And, you know, and again, I'm always on about, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what's going to do it, but I believe his his followers at some point at the end are going to find themselves back in the physical Middle East. Well, and this might lead you to believe that same thing. Uh, Okay. So Ephraim is his firstborn, and he's the one that his name is double fruit or fruitful. Uh, Genesis 48, 9 through 14, we're just sort of continuing on with the Torah portion here. And Joseph said unto his father, and remember the question, whose are these? And Joseph answers the question, "Uh, these are my sons whom God gave me in this place. And he said, bring them to me, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so he could not see. So he brought them, this would be Jacob, brought them, or Joseph, I'm sorry, brought them near unto him, and he kissed and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I, I thought not to see your face, and lo, God has showed me also your seed. So Joseph brought them out from between his knees. And remember, Joseph, uh, the, the absolute oldest that the oldest one could be would be 16. And chances are he was probably 14, and the younger one was maybe 10, 12, something like that. So he brought them out uh, from between his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand so that Israel could put his right hand on the oldest and his left hand on the youngest, which is how you you would bless them. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head guiding his hands wittingly for Manasseh was the firstborn. So he's now got his arms crossed because Joseph made a big deal of putting the kids in front of him so that he could just reach out straight. But he crossed his hands, which is what I was looking for in those pictures. Um, And it said he did so wittingly. The spirit told him to do this. And he this and, and think back, Israel is blind. He couldn't really see these two kids. So he... He was telling his son that these kids are mine, I'm adopting them, but he couldn't see them there because he was blind. So when he must have heard or something, and that's when he asked, well, who's these? What's what's this? Who are these guys, right? Because he couldn't see them. But the spirit is the one that told him to adopt the two children that Joseph had because it was important they were going to confer the double blessing and the you know double fruit that's his name um the spirit told him to do that so it says he's guiding his hands wittingly the spirit is telling him what to do he couldn't necessarily see them but he crossed his hands so that uh he and by the way this word uh guides his hands wittingly, it's Salal. There's an Aleph Tav in the middle of that. So you know that the spirit is right, because it says, I mean, the Aleph Tav's right there. Um, so anyway, he, he crosses his hands and he blesses him. So in verse 15, it starts, and he blessed Joseph and he said, uh, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Let my name be named upon them. What was his name? Israel. Israel. These kids are in, of course, they have to be their Gentiles. I mean, it makes perfect sense. So I've always said when you're reading through scripture and you read the word Israel, you have to, is it the nation Israel? Is it the people Israel? Is it the guy Israel? Most of the time, several of those are true. But almost always it's talking about us. When you you read Jesus saying something like, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. He's not saying he came only for the Jews. He came only for his followers, for the people who were committed to him. Duh. Okay, but it doesn't read that way to us. So this is, this is all from the Spirit. He says, let my name be named upon them. His name is Israel. These people are Israel, just like we're Israel, the Gentiles who follow after the Lord. So picking it up in verse 17. And when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. Because the Spirit was telling him this. He shall also become a people, and he shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. This is the same term with the people who <coughs> excuse me, left Egypt it was this multitude of nations they were all Jewish there were Gentiles in the group that's what this is all about I know it my son I know it he couldn't see him but he wittingly crossed his hands he he adopted two kids he couldn't even see he knew he didn't recognize them. I mean this is all just perfect but all through scripture you'll see people from Adam to Abraham to Moses to Daniel There's a number of people who just seem to already know what the story is. They know from beginning to end what's going to happen, and they live their lives that way. That's Israel. He, He was seeing in the distance of time. He saw the end. He saw the end of time, and he saw who was there. And it's Israel and Judah. It's the 12 tribes and these Gentiles who follow after the Lord. Okay, Jeremiah 31 again. Ephraim, my dear son, is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, saith the Lord. Also set up, uh, set the up way marks. Make thee high heaps and set thy heart towards the highway. Even the way which you you go, turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again these cities. How long will you go about the backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall compass a man. So I'm... uh, You read the whole backsliding daughter thing, and it's hard for me to read that and not think he's talking about us. (laughs) the Gentile believers stuck in the world in Egypt, and we get so sidetracked with the things of the world, backslidden is, I think, a legitimate term for most people claiming to be Christians because they're, they're not these things that we are to be, but hopefully we will be. So anyway, it says, he's basically saying, how weird is this? This is as weird as having a woman conquer a warrior, which is this, This you know, it's, it says a woman shall compass a man in English, but this word man isn't, isn't any of the words we use for man. It's Gebur. It's a warrior. So an average woman, you wouldn't expect an average woman to go out and conquer a warrior with spears and arrows and all that stuff. That's how weird this thing is with Israel. Israel is my firstborn. Ephraim is my firstborn. Israel, are the world, the Gentiles, this, this church of Gentiles will inherit the promised land. This is how weird that is. That a woman could kick a warrior's butt is basically what he's saying. And it is weird because we're, we're trained to believe that Israel, that the Jews are the people of God. And I mean, they are. They're the people of God. But there's a whole different picture here. This Church of the Gentiles, adopting the Egyptians, the the term Israel. I mean, we're part and parcel of this whole thing and we have been from the beginning. It's not like we just slipped in after the Jews. And that's what a lot of Christians think. Oh, the Jews blew it. So the spirit came to us. Like we're the second guest. You know, we're the second choice because Israel was being a pain. That's absolutely not true. Before there was an Israel, the Gentiles were already selected to be in the promised land. That's us. We have every bit the same right as Judah does. Okay, um, finishing up the Torah portion here in 21, it says, And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, and God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given thee one portion above the bre- thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. <clears throat> there's there's nothing in inscri- Remember where he's going to be buried, right? In Machpelah. Abraham purchased this land from Ephraim the Hittite. He bought the land. They didn't conquer it. They didn't take it. They didn't steal it. He gave him 400 shekels of silver for a piece of property worth 25 shekels of silver. He bought it. It's his. So then we read sort of as this, you know, it doesn't even explain it. This says, moreover giving you one portion. of Okay, one portion by your brethren because I inherited two of your kids. So now you get two portions, not just the one. Okay, got that. And I took out, <coughs> sorry with which I took out the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. There is no record of Israel ever having to go to battle with the Amorites, the Hittites, anybody else to get this land back. So either there was a battle that's not recorded in scripture, which is possible, or this is something future. This is a prophecy. So you remember where Machpelah was? It was in Shechem. And you remember Shechem was, the, they raped Dinah and, and, and the, uh, Levi and Simeon went in. remember they said, okay, we'll intermarry you guys if you just um, circumcise yourself. So he gets them all circumcised and while they're down, um, Simeon and Levi go in and they kill all the men, take all the plunder, take the women and children. Uh, this is Shechem. That's the place where Jacob said, why did you do that? You've made me... Uh, what was You made me taste bad in, this, in the, uh, or smell bad. You made me stink. You made me smell bad in the, in the sight of the people because you did this thing. And then the Lord came in and put the fear of, literally the fear of God on those people and they didn't do anything to Jacob. All this is in Shechem. That's where Machpelah is. That's where the, 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 to this day, that's where the cave is where all the patriarchs and their wives are buried. Do you know where that is? Machpelah, Shechem. It's today it's called Nablus. It's in the Palestinian territories. And the Palestinians just continually desecrate all these things. But the time is coming when Israel is going to take that back. And they're just not going to give it back. Even though it belongs to Abraham, he bought it. He didn't take it. They have no right to it. But they currently, there's a city of 126,000 Palestinians parked right on Shechem, Nablus. The time is coming, and I suspect fairly soon, when whatever's happening at the end is gonna happen, and they're taking this back. And they're not just asking nicely for it, they're taking it with a sword and a bow. And I would bet you dollars to donuts that's one of those things Israel could see in the distance of time, that he was going to take this back by force because the enemies of God had taken it. So, uh, wow, well, 8 o'clock, we did good. Okay, so uh, it, it, uh, the Torah portion ends this way. In Genesis 49.1, well, that's not how it ends. It says, gather yourselves together today that I may tell them. <laughs> it's about to end this way. The next, the, the rest of the Torah portion is um, Israel is prophesying over the other the other brothers. And you can read that, and it's interesting. It's It takes tons of work to figure that out. But it, it ends this way. Genesis 49, verse 1, it says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. So that's been the whole purpose of this from the last six or seven Torah portions. And it started that way. Let me tell you what's going to happen at the end. And it ends this way. Let me tell you what's going to happen at the end. And then uh, he goes through some of the stuff. One of the interesting things in Genesis 49 is uh, he's, he's prophesying over Judah. It says, "...a scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes." And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. Washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. He's it's saying in, in the in a weird Hebrew way. You will be, you will be so rich that it will take one donkey to carry all the grapes from one vine. There will be, uh, you'll and, and he says it in different ways in the past. You know that the plowmen will catch up with the reapers because there's so much growing in the field. It takes them so long to reap it that by the time the season comes to plant, they're still trying to reap the, the good stuff. You're just going to be, it's going to be, it's the promised land. It's awesome. And it says uh, Shiloh will not, uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor a I from between his feet until Shiloh come. So it's talking about obviously the, the return of the Messiah and what these things are going to look like and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Then the, the longest blessing is for Joseph, a fruitful bow, even a fruitful bow, bow by a well. And we've talked about wells and fruitful boughs, and you, know, you, can, you can read all that stuff. But the point I'm trying to make is all of the, these last six or so Torah portions are about the end times, and, and then it closes that way. This is what you're going to see at the end times. And it always revolves around us, the Gentiles at the end times. We are going to be regathered. We're going to be brought back to Israel. The promised land is given to us from the very beginning along with the, the other brothers. It's not like we're replacing them. We, we have the same inheritance they do. And it's not a new thing. We didn't get it because, you know, the Jews crapped out on it. And, you know, they, they decided not to follow the Messiah. That has nothing to do with it. We were given that at the same time they were given that. We're the other brother. We're the half half Egyptian. We don't look like they do. They don't recognize us. We're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. And this is all about us. So anyway, that's that's uh, the Torah portions in the book of Genesis.